I've always loved spam. Not the food, though. I'm not sure if I've ever had it. I mean, like, email spam. When I was an undergrad at Pitt, I received a ton of spam. A lot of it was the run of the mill, you've won a free horse, now give us your social security number stuff. Some of it was your standard, enlarge your penis, improve your libido stuff. And some of it was just pure gibberish. I can think of one time that I fell for it though. The subject line said, you look really stupid in this video, AWG6. AWG6 was my pit email. A for Alex, W for Waters, you get it. Nobody calls me AWG6. Not even close friends. But something about this subject line hooked me. This was 2006. Emails from Facebook were a new, exciting thing to look forward to every day. I was forever being tagged in videos and looking stupid in them, so this wasn't totally unimaginable. I couldn't resist the mystery. What video? What made me look so stupid in it? And how did they know? So I clicked the link, and my computer exploded. Not literally, but it wreaked havoc on my laptop for months before I finally got it fixed. And when I did, I swore never again. Then, last week, I got an email at my city paper account. I should say that when I'm not podcasting this podcast or writing about music, I'm the assistant listings editor here at City Paper. So along with listings editor Celine Roberts, we handle the listings you see online and in print every week in City Paper. Folks send us emails about their events and gallery openings, concerts, and we compile them and share them with you. And as with any form submission on a website, we get a shitload of spam. So last week, I got a listing for a concert by a band called Band Name. That's B-A-N-D-N-A-M-E. So I started inputting it into the system. Band name is playing a show tonight at Altar Bar, 7 p.m. And then under the category event repeating, it said every day with no end date. Which meant that band name was playing Altar Bar tonight and every night into the future at 7 p.m. Like forever. Like an artist residency, but like one of those infinite ones. Something didn't add up. Bandname's website was bandname.com, and their phone number was 412-123-4567. What was the deal? Did this band simply have excellent branding and an excellent phone number? No. This was bullshit. It was a fraud. It was a test. And I passed. So all I can say is, you look really stupid in this podcast, Bandname. Welcome to City Paper's Untitled Podcast. I'm Alex Gordon. I'll share more of my adventures in spam in the weeks to come, but today we're talking with CP reporter Ryan Dito about the U.S. Senate campaign. Three major candidates are vying for the Democratic primary nomination and then face Republican U.S. Senator Pat Toomey. City Paper is launching his series about how the candidates will tackle issues facing Western PA, but that are also resonating throughout the nation. Issues like affordable housing, fracking, and gun control. Now let's go to Ryan. Okay, Ryan, why is this Senate race so important? So according to the political experts, this seat is one of the biggest seats in terms of an opportunity for the Democrats to take back the U.S. Senate. If they don't win this seat, you know, Republican Toomey's seat, then there's a good chance they won't 
take back the Senate and won't have control of that uh, House, basically. Mm. Uh, and what we're talking about today is affordable housing, and that's also the subject that you focused on a lot in your writing at City Paper. Uh, what draws you to this subject? Well, uh, I'm from California, where it's basically a problem in every city there. I've lived in Boston, where it's a huge problem as well. And when I moved to Pittsburgh, I, I really didn't, I'd heard the rents were cheap and, and, you know, a lot of places they still are relatively cheap. But when I started hearing about this problem that was happening with people moving to neighborhoods like Lawrenceville and East Liberty, I, I, I was just so drawn to this, uh, kind of interesting Rust Belt revival combined with gentrification and uh, affordable housing is is that story. And uh, uh, it was just something that, you know, I think we need to cover. So you've spoken with all three Democratic candidates uh, about affordable housing. What have they had to say? Fetterman talked about kind of using innovative solutions. Like uh, he, he kind of backed up the, you know, Mayor Peduto's plan to... Uh, basically use Section 8 funds to uh, get people to buy homes. Uh, and he also talked about this uh, thing called a community land trust, which is where nonprofits or government agencies uh, own land but sell the house that sits on that land uh, but still maintain ownership of the land. That way the next buyer can uh, make sure that the house is sold affordably. It needs to be a, a, a national priority. It builds stronger communities for everybody and that's good for the people that don't have to rely on subsidized housing to find a place to live and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's a moral obligation that we as a society, if we're going to you know, build up these communities and they become more and more gentrified, that we provide a mechanism to keep a, um, uh, an established set of residents there that have grown up there and that's all they know. All right, and then you spoke to McGinty uh, over the phone. What did she have to say? Well, she was uh, pretty focused on uh, breaking up what the concentration of poverty is, uh, I guess, the language she used a lot. That was her main goal, that the this concentration of poverty that a lot of communities have seen has led to uh, communities basically struggling all the time because they have to work so much and they don't have money to pay bills and all these things and they're not able to do things like uh, be volunteer firefighters and stuff like that and uh, her her way to address that was to uh, kind of an inclusionary uh, requirements on new development basically if if new development's going to come into a neighborhood she wanted to see that portions of that money go towards affordable housing and that portions of the work or all of the work is given to members of the community affected, basically. Look, there are all kinds of streams of dollars that get put to work uh, in projects and economic development. Uh, and it's not just the housing dollars per se, which are vitally important mm -hmm. uh, and need to be grown, uh, but you know, when money's being lent to uh, or given to clean up a brownfield, it should come with in, in inclusion requirements, both on the housing side uh, and in terms of who gets the jobs. All right, and Sestak talked about Litech in his quote with you. Uh, can you give me a little bit of background on that? Yeah, Litech is a uh, low-income housing credit, basically. It's uh, given to developers 
and under the condition that they will include in affordable units in in their development uh it's they basically save on taxes for a you know 10 year span or however long the span is uh and then with the uh requirement that they uh include uh low income units in their uh project Litech basically is a public private venture it's, yeah. you know it's over 100 billion i don't have the exact amount but i know it's over 100 billion of private uh capital that it's kind of helped uh to be invested and to help the economy and all. The payback on the revenues from that is immense. Mm -hmm. And so if you can present those, an expansion like that is the cost benefit of the longer term revenues ensuing, it helps out. All right, thanks Ryan. Yeah, no problem. With the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary just around the corner, I spoke to our editor, Charlie Deitch, to get his take on the Republican candidates. And you know what? I made him choose one. Let's go there now. Just when you think that the whole Donald Trump thing can't get any crazier, uh, it, it just he brings out, like, he just kicks it up to the next level. It's just, it's unbelievable um, how insane this is getting. And then add to that the fact that he actually could become the president of the United States as he is even scarier. It's so funny. They keep, they're keeping these moments where different people in different parts of the media say, okay, now it's not funny anymore. Right. Um, and for and the record, I've said it's not funny from the very beginning because it plays to the part of the Republican base that, number one, votes. Number two, believes in the same crazy shit that, you know, the stuff that we all used to joke about, like, oh, you know, there's these crazy guys who believe that the uh, CIA flew the plane into the into the towers on 9-11. Like, oh, those guys are nuts. But now those guys are the ones selecting leaders of this country. And it's it's scary. It's, it's, um, it's really frightening to me. And that's partly why... I'm having trouble getting on the Bernie Sanders train, even though I believe with, I believe in absolutely everything he has to say, is because it's almost like, well, well, our far left guy beat your far right guy, and I don't know if that's a chance I'm willing to take with, with you know, I think so much on the line. All right, so I have a tough question. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there any who, if you have to go with somebody in that field, uh, in the Republican field, yeah, you have to, you can't back out. Well, for many reasons, I think, I guess. I think probably, act like I'm struggling. I don't think I'm struggling with it. I think I'm trying to, I think I'm trying to, like, can I defend this once I make my <laughs> right, choice, yeah. which it's is really exactly the question. problem. Yeah. But no, I think, I think probably unflinchingly, I think I probably say Chris Christie, even though the numbers show that he doesn't have a chance of getting, right. getting elected. But, um, you know, socially, I don't think Christie is a horrible. Uh, I don't know. He's sort of got like a Sopranos, New Jersey kind of a thing going that I'm almost like, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's a fat guy. Maybe that's what draws me to him. I don't know, a fellow fat guy. But, you know, I don't know. There's something about Chris Christie that I don't think – while I think he is a political animal who probably has got a shit ton of skeletons in his closet. Yes. No yeah. I, I, I don't know. There's just something about him that I think that – I don't think the world would be horrible under Chris Christie. You heard the man. 
That's Charlie Deach for Chris Christie 2016. Thanks, Chuck. Celine Roberts here with your CP Weekend Calendar. Dreams of Hope brings their original production, Webs, to the Alloy Studios in Friendship this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. This show, performed by the Theatric Youth Ensemble, tells the story of two young queer people who connect online by discussing Greek mythology. As they compare these stories to their own lives, they come together to make a new narrative. If you can make the drive to Butler on Saturday afternoon, you'll be rewarded with tasty wine. The Butler County Wine Festival at the Days Inn Butler continues through the afternoon and into the evening with sampling, sessions with the vintners, raffles, and more. Munch and sip your way through a cold January day. Saturday night, head to the Irma Freeman Center for Imagination in Garfield for the Great Pittsburgh Spelling Bee. Enter the fray to spell some words for fun and for charity. After taking a long break, the bee is back to challenge dictionary readers, word lovers, and anyone looking for some friendly competition. All are welcome, although the bee is mostly an adult participation event. If late night Saturday fun is more your style, Cuban pianist Ramon Valle and his trio play at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild in the North Side. If you love Latin jazz, this is a rare opportunity to see one of its great artists, who started to learn the craft at only seven. The years of practice really show. After you've done your Sunday morning shopping in the Strip, you're sure to have worked up an appetite. The Pittsburgh Public Market and Friends Food Truck Roundup is there to slake those tummy grumbles. Trucks from Bulldogs, Lapa Lapa, Second Breakfast, Gyros and That, Southside Barbecue, Saucy Mamas, and Cool Beans Truck will be posted up between 24th and 25th Street. Take your food into the market and grab a drink to finish off your meal. Sunday afternoon, the Duquesne University Tamboritsons will be performing their long-running show at the Palace Theater in Greensburg. The group, named for a stringed folk instrument, travels the country performing music and dance from Eastern Europe. They bring an incredible amount of color and energy to the stage that can't be denied. That's what's on my list for the weekend. For more listings, you can visit us there at www.pghcitypaper.com. You can submit your own listing by emailing happenings at pghcitypaper.com. Look for Pittsburgh City Paper on Facebook and follow the at PGH City Paper handle on Twitter and Instagram. It's a busy Sunday afternoon at Lydia's in the Strip District. We're in the kitchen. Chefs are stirring giant stainless steel pots of seasoned greens and squeezing chicken liver mousse onto crostini. Our columnist Celine Roberts got to catch up with the queen of Italian cooking herself, Lydia Bastianich. No doubt you know who Bastianich is. She has three cooking shows on PBS. She runs famed restaurants in New York City, Kansas City, and Pittsburgh City. She's written several cookbooks and even children's books about Nona, teaching Italian cooking to her grandkids. And you've probably seen her face on her line of pasta sauces and other products. But here's the thing. Lydia's beginnings are modest. Her family came to America as political refugees, and they lived in a part of Italy that eventually became communist Yugoslavia. She attributes her interest in cooking to her family and has built her empire around it. 
Celine caught up with her about her new book, Liddy is Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine. Let's go there now. Today we bring you the second segment of Sound Bite, which brings the sounds of kitchens and bars all over Pittsburgh directly to your ears. Today we are here at Lydia's Pittsburgh with Lydia Bastianich, the great and renowned Italian chef who has her own PBS series and has just released her cookbook, Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine. Lydia's Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine. That's the whole title. It's a big title, but I think it warrants it. It's a big title for a big book. Um, Your introduction actually caused me to get teary-eyed, which is sort of where I'd like to take us today. I felt like you had a lot to say and that it summed up the legacy of your past books and also your focus on food and family and what continues to be important to you after almost 50 years in the kitchen. Well, you're, you're right on, because that was, uh, this is the kind of book, it has over 400 uh, recipes, uh, over 500 pages, has a big glossary. The intro is 60 plus pages just, and that is about my philosophy, my 50 years as a chef in, in restaurants. As a mother, as a grandmother, and the importance of, of food in all of those aspects of my life. Uh, but it's a collection. It's a collection of, of hows and whys of cooking, of Italian cooking, that made me who I am. Uh, so in the beginning of the, of the title, it's Lydia's Mastering the Art of Italian Cuisine. Uh, by no means does it mean wholly mastering the art of Italian cuisine, but it is Lydia's, and it is my life and passion and love for cooking Italian food. Can you tell us uh, one early memory of when you began to feel like a cook? Uh, Well, I think that I can tell you maybe even better uh, some memories that uh, made me passionate about food, that connected me to, to, to food in a very visceral way, and that is that as a, as a growing child in the aftermath of World War II in Italy, life wasn't all that easy. And um, we were uh, growing up in, with grandma, maternal grandparents, while mom and dad work and so on. And it was a wonderful courtyard. Uh, I still go back to it today. It's there. It kind of reinforces me, re recharges me and in this courtyard grandma had everything that we needed to survive and that was chickens ducks uh, goats we milked the goat uh, for breakfast we had pigs uh, every november the slaughter the prosciuttos the sausages but also they made the olive oil we had uh, olive trees uh, grandpa made wine and of course the garden the seasonal garden and i grew up in that setting i was the little runner for grandma picked, uh, you know, milk the, those goats, uh, run for the eggs from the chicken, help her make the bread, the pasta, and um, ultimately, you know, in the garden, spring, the peas, uh, summer, uh, the potatoes, helping her dig them out of the earth, still nice and warm. So my passion for food goes really, really down deep to those warm potatoes out of the earth. and. Hence, from there, uh, we moved on, my family trying to, my mother and father, give us a better life. Uh, we ultimately came to the United States as immigrant at the age of 12, and food remained always my co- connection to my roots, to my grandparents, and to who I am as a person. And just as much as you are a cook, 
you have such a passion for teaching. Uh, so I have to let you know that I did cook a recipe out of your new book, the butternut squash gnocchi with sage butter. And I've never made gnocchi before. So the rolling, my rolling technique got a little better as time went on. I doubled the recipe so I could have some time to learn. Um, but I did feel like you were right in the kitchen with me. Uh, your instructions were so clear. Do you have any advice for people that are taking on a recipe that they feel might be out of their league, but they're still excited about it? It is important that you choose a recipe that you think you can uh, master in the sense that you can just make it happen. And then good education is the list of ingredients. So minimize those, you know, as, uh, as uh, don't get a long, long recipe. But secondly, I think that trust and have confidence in yourself. Read that recipe thoroughly. Read it once. Read it twice. Read the techniques. Okay, so I have the ingredients. I have the timing of the ingredients. What are the techniques? And then ultimately you pull it together. Uh, and and, and in, in most cases it will happen. It will happen if you have confidence of yourself, if you go in the kitchen and just, you know, put common sense with that recipe and things do happen. And I must say, you know, like where, anything that you do for the first time, you know, you need to do it over and over again and you get better and better as you do it every time. Many of the things that you speak about in your books and on your show are the importance of good ingredients to start with and packing a lot of flavor without doing a lot of work. Um, prep work aside, that's always a lot of work for me anyway, uh, but do you have any recommendations for choosing ingredients? I think, you know, if you, the basis of Italian cuisine is a seasonal cuisine, a regional cuisine, uh, and a simple cuisine. So, stay within the seasons. Whatever the season offers, and whatever grows or is offered in, in your vicinity, you know, you don't need to fly things from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere to make a recipe in January. There's plenty of root vegetables, other things. So stay seasonal, stay local, and uh, stay simple. Simple recipes. If the fruits, vegetables, products are at their best, so that's very important, choosing, choosing those at their best, then half of your work is really done. And since we are Soundbite, can you give us one kitchen sound that strikes a chord with you? I think the just the, the chopping of the of the of the knife, uh, chopping parsley or chopping I can remember that being one of my first uh, duties with Grandma. I would have and I was on that wooden board, chop 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 away. Well, thank you so much, Lydia. We really appreciate you coming on the show with us today. And I can't wait to be eating your delicious food out of your new cookbook. My pleasure. Sit down and enjoy. And uh, keep on uh, giving sound bites.
All right, my first question is, were you nervous meeting Lydia? Absolutely. She's an intimidating, she cuts an intimidating figure. Yeah. I was very nervous, and then I sat down with her, and she immediately was a complete professional, has clearly done this a lot. Uh, so I think it made our job, it made it a lot easier for me to talk to someone who wanted to be engaged. And that one of the things that she really emphasizes in a lot of the interviews that I've heard with her or read um, is her desire to connect with young people. And I tried to leverage that to my benefit <laughs> because we're a young, we're a young podcast. We're young folks, yeah. And she was really, really happy to give me her time, which made me feel great. One thing I didn't tell her, that I, I wanted to tell her this story, but I didn't because it makes me look bad, um, <laughs> is that I had, she, she just released a cookbook, which is why she was in Pittsburgh in the first place. It, it's very simply printed, uh, beautifully bound. There are no glossy color photographs. It's all line drawings. And I wanted to make a recipe out of it before I met her so I could say I, I made one right. of your recipes. Makes sense. Love me. <laughs> and I picked uh, something ambitious for me since I'd never made it before. It's a butternut sage gnocchi. Oh. And I love to cook and I'm definitely a home cook and have worked in a kitchen. But making gnocchi when you've never made it before is an undertaking. And I started the recipe, which I read through obsessively several times. And one of the ways that you make gnocchi is that you take a starch, in this case, potatoes and butternut squash, okay. and you boil them and you turn them into a dough with flour and salt and whatever other seasoning you want to put in that dough, which is all well and good. But you have to break up the starch in order to turn it into a nice, kneadable dough in order to make what are essentially dumplings. Yeah. And to do this, you need to push it through some sort of sieve or colander, or you need to have a potato ricer, which is essentially a colander with metal handles okay. that make it easy to depress this metal plate on top to press it through the sieve. And it gotcha. cuts down on your work a lot. Yeah. But there's an instruction in the recipe that says if you don't have a potato ricer, which is kind of an antiquated kitchen instrument in many ways. I grew up with one because my family has Amish roots. Ah. So you had to have a potato ricer. So I was like, oh, everyone has one, <laughs> except for me. Yeah. I don't have one in my apartment. So the instruction was, if you don't have a potato ricer, you can use, you can just push it through a colander or a sip. Great. I have both of those things. Yeah. It's going to go just fine, swimmingly. Did not go fine. Uh, I ended up covered in potato. Oh, my probably up to mid forearm trying to push potatoes down they were slipping everywhere oh God. i was very discouraged by it and so i went on a quest to find a potato ricer yeah the closest place they sell them to my apartment is william and sonoma and i will be damned if i'm going to pay 40 dollars for a fancy <laughs> potato ricer i'm not doing it right okay and since most of my friends are either young women that are disguised as old ladies <laughs> uh, in their hobbies. You know, they love to crochet. They love to read novels. Yeah, so I, a potato ricer's the next step. Yeah. Right. So I sent out a blast email. and was like, hey, everyone, I need a potato ricer. Someone give me one. So I did end up finding one. 
through a friend of a friend who was clearly very freaked out that I was showing up at their door asking for their potato rice. Yeah. And so I took it from him and I told him that I would give it back to him, which I probably won't. Not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's mine now. Yeah. And I successfully riced the potatoes and the butternut squash together and I added cinnamon and salt and I rolled it into a dough and I destroyed my kitchen and I even improved my fork tine rolling technique to make that dimpling effect that you see. I watched a lot of YouTube videos, yeah. lots of Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> and I, it turned out amazing. Really? Yeah, it was a total success. Oof. That was a roller coaster. I didn't know it was going to happen. It was. It was a roller coaster for me, too. Yeah. So, wait, what's the, can you say the name of this, this dish? It's butternut squash sage. Gnocchi. And the sage part is in the butter. So it's just a, yeah. a sage butter emulsion. That sounds amazing. It was really tasty. Did you eat it all yourself? Maybe. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Celine. Thanks, Alex. All right. That's it for episode two. Big news on our front, the CP Untitled Podcast is now available on iTunes, just like the Beatles. Search City Paper Podcast on iTunes to find us and hit the subscribe button. Be sure to check us out at www.pghcitypaper.com, where we have our new Politocrat blog. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at pghcitypaper. Holding on by Northern Gold, which you heard on this show this week, is our featured MP3 Monday track. Download or stream our feature track every Monday on our Fast Forward blog. I'm Alex Gordon. The City Paper Untitled Podcast is produced by Ashley Murray, featuring Celine Roberts and Charlie Deach. More next week. Bye-bye.